This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plans FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plansfm.org.nz. Again, and welcome everyone to the June programme of the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Connection. It is presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio Plains FM 96.9 at 8.30pm on the last Monday night of each month. The programme is repeated on Monday two weeks later at noon. Yeah, did you hear the interview with Jim Mora on Sunday morning? He was talking to Jesse Williamson, who was brought up in New Zealand but has lived in Shetland for over 20 years. She thought there was about 30 New Zealanders in Shetland, one being a hairdresser and another from Sumner in Christchurch was an undertaker. It was a very interesting interview. 
Yes, I heard it, Heather, and thought it really good. Mm. Yes. Mm. You know, I was interested that um, she said that she'd had lessons on how to build stone dikes, and I, that's something I would quite like to have done too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. Now, to something different, the bombing of Orkney. On the evening of March 16th, 1940, Orcadians slowly realised that the planes they could hear were not British and that the guns were not just practising. The first serious air raid of World War II had begun. At least 15 aircraft attacked Orkney, with Stennis feeling the worst effects. The German claim that airfields at Kirkwall and Stromness were attacked supports the theory that the airfield beside the Brigger Waith was mistaken for a military target. The building at the nearby junction became famous as Orkney's nightclub, the Golden Slipper, but in 1940, it was Willie Farquhar's cobbler's shop. Men gathered there in the evening, so Willie and his mother, Ellen, sold lemonade, sweets and cigarettes. Two young females lived nearby, James and Lily Ibister, with a three-month-old Neil, and Alfie and Kathleen Linklater, with a ten-month-old Freddie. Isla McLeod's house was just across the road. Ellen Farquhar described that night to the Orcadian. No one paid much attention to the noise until gunfire such as I have never heard before lit up the whole district like red and shook the house. Several times we heard thuds and the boys said that that was the bombs bursting. The young lads by this time were clearing off to their various homes. The flare made by so many red flashes from the guns shone over the hills and across the sky. All the time it flickered as different guns were fired. The noise was frightsome. Then the bombs fell. I just saw a blue and white flame which dazzled me at the same moment as a terrible explosion shook everything. The shop window crashed in and I was half choked with dust. I rubbed my eyes and saw Willie sagging against the wall at the door. He was half doubled up, and I knew he had been hit. I struggled towards him, but the sight went from me, and I felt suddenly weak. When I more or less came to, Willie was attending to me, instead of me attending to him. Blood was pouring from a wound in his thigh. When he got me all right, he told me to stay where I was, and he left me to go and help any of the other folk who might be hurt. Yeah, Willie was interviewed for next week's paper. My first thought was for my mother, and I was relieved to see her on her feet. The two young lads, Tom Work and Billy Clouston, were there too. Everybody was looking very scared, so far as I could see through a cloud of dust. When we got outside, the first thing I saw was Jim Eisbister lying in his doorway. His feet were outside and his head was inside. He was lying on his back with his arms upwards, just as the force of the explosion had thrown him. Lily, his wife, was out by this time. She called to me to come and help her lift Jim inside. We made to lift him. I knew he was dead. I could see that the spirit had gone from him. Elfie Linklater came on the scene at a run. He was sort of limping like me. He was losing blood. But we were able to do something. We got Jim into the house and laid him on the bed. 
By that time, John Scott from Biggings was here, and he got back into his car and went to Strumness for assistance. James Ibister was just 27 when he became the first British civilian to be killed by enemy action in World War II. The Blitz did not begin until September, so the nation's attention was drawn to Orkney. The Illustrated magazine published a six-page article in April. Things could have been even worse, as 19 bombs fell around the houses. The worst affected was Isla MacLeod's. Young John Fleet, who had been cycling from Stromness, ran to help. I arrived at the back of the cottage that appeared to have got the worst of it. It was still standing, but it was absolutely shaken to bits. Half the slates were off the roof, and I could see the moon through it. A man grabbed me by the arm and cried, There's a wife in that hoose. He and another man were making to go in when I saw the woman appear in the doorway among the wreckage. She was obviously injured, but when somebody asked, Are you hurt? she replied, Not so bad. A smithy used to stand at the junction, and James Ibister's brother John was the blacksmith. This article was written by Patricia Long, who is a local tour guide based in Stennis, with a particular interest in social and family history. Her website can be found at www.aboutorkney.com. Mm. Yeah, it must have been a terrible um, experience for the people, and I think the uncertainty of whether they were going to get more, and I'm quite surprised yes. that Orkney actually wasn't attacked more than what it was because the British fleet was at Scapa Flow, and I know they did get bombed a wee bit, but not mm. as much as I would have thought. Yeah, can't mm. imagine it's, a, it's such a vulnerable place. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Mm. Now, the following snippets are from Promote Shetland. They have a Shetland bucket list that lists interesting things to do in Shetland. If you go to Facebook and put in Great Shetland Bucket List, it should come up. You may be able to find it on the Promote Shetland site as well. Mm. Now for walkers. The walk across Hermanes to see the Muckleflugger Lighthouse should be world famous. The tiny islet of Outstack is technically the northernmost point in the UK. But the Flugger Lighthouse on a little stack just beyond the headland is the photo opportunity. The story goes that it was formed by a battle between the giants Herma and Saxa, who had fallen in love with the same mermaid and took to hurling rocks at one another, before both drowning trying to follow the mermaid to the North Pole. This walk is on the Great Shetland bucket list. Gosh, it's always a woman involved, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it <laughs> Even is. if it's a mermaid. Yes. <laughs> and it often ends up in someone drowning. Yeah. Now, here's one for all you cyclists. Shetland doesn't quite do Tour de France-worthy mountains, but the hilly road between Vaux and Aith is known locally as the Shetland Alps. It is one of the more beautiful in the islands and well-known among local cyclists, and it's a lovely drive too. With the 21,000-foot elevation change along the eight-mile route, you can justify stopping at Cake Fridge Cafe at East Barrafirth. If you are coming from Vaux, it's worth carrying on past Aith to Weasdale, possibly stopping for a selfie at the sign of Twat. 
Well, the sign called twat, you really have to stop and take a photo, don't you? Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, but there's a twat in Orkney as well. Yeah, there's a twat it's post office. I've got a photo of the cousin standing outside the twat post office here. Yes, now, I had a look at this road on Google Maps, and in places the countryside looked pretty barren, and the road narrow with just passing bays. So, yeah. Oh, I love those little roads with wee passing, passing bays. bays. Who can and drive flag. fastest and get there first? And the flag of, uh, yeah. above. Yes. <laughs> Here's one for nature lovers. It's tempting, but not correct, to say that Shetland has no trees. It just doesn't have many. But the forest of Kurgord, near Weasdale, in the centre of the mainland, makes a legitimately soothing spot for forest bathing, or Shinrin-yoku, as the practice is called in its homeland, Japan. The forest is mostly made up of spruce and Japanese larch trees, which were planted by a state owner, George Munro, between 1913 and 1920. It's only nine acres of woodland, but inside it feels like being deep in the forest, with the muffled sound of birds and the tinkling stream as you walk up towards the rope swing at the top of the hill. Yes, that little forest, um, Jessie Williamson mentioned it in her interview, and yes. she was sort of having a wee bit of a laugh because it's only a very small area. Yes. You know, isn't coming from New Zealand in our big forests. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Now, you golfers. The 18-hole golf course at Walesay, built by local volunteers, isn't just the northernmost and easternmost golf course in the UK. It is also a beautiful course with sea on both sides and some treacherous shots, including across a dramatic inlet on the 16th hole. Distractions include spotting seals and the occasional orca, or stopping play for planes landing at the Walsay airstrip. But if the course is open 24 hours, so if you play late into the simmer dim, there is little chance of taking out a charter plane with your nine iron. <laughs> now, this is from 150 years ago. Alleged offence under the Barrow Police Act. On Thursday last at one o'clock, the Borough Procurator Fiscal, Mr Bruce, and Mr Cowper, writer, attended, attended the townhouse, the former to prosecute in the letter to defend Mr Connon of the Kirkwall Hotel and Mr Muir of the Castle Hotel for washing their gigs in the public roads and streets of the town. After awaiting for about a quarter of an hour, the parties left the court, no magistrate having appeared to try the case. Provost Bain and Bailey Scarth, we understand, are out of town. The summonses issued against the parties were signed by Bailey Reid. Yes, I think there's been you know, charged for washing your gig on the on the road. I thought people wash their cars on the side of the road these days. Maybe you never think a thing about it, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, the Lewick Community Council has heard that broken glass is being left buried at the Sands of Sound Beach on purpose. Chairman Jim Anderson said leaving glass behind on purpose was despicable. He suggested contacting the landowner to see if a warning sign might be put up. Mm -hmm. You wonder about the mentality of those people, don't you? Mm. Mm. Now, a book borrowed from the Shetland Library has finally made its way back there, 38 years after it was last taken out. The dog-eared copy of The Sea in a Sieve by Peter Bull should have been returned on the 12th of July, 1983. Last year, the Shetland Times reported that the book had turned up in a library in Suffolk. 
Support Services librarian Catherine Jeromeson said she was delighted the book had made the 750-mile journey back to the Isles. It's always nice to have these little treasures showing up in the most unlikely places. It was discovered during a house clearance. (laughs) (laughs) Two beaches in Yell, Shetland, have been named on Keep Scotland Beautiful's list of Scotland's Beach Award winners. Sands of Brecon and West Sandwick were among those on the list. The awards are given to beaches that are clean, well-managed and sustainable. Tribute was paid to the incredible work of the local community of Yell in keeping their beaches so clean. Ah, a £25 million bid for funding to replace the ageing Feral Ferry, Good Shepherd, was given final approval at a full council meeting recently. The Shetland Island Council will now bid for just under £25 million from the UK government's Leveling Up Fund, which will go towards a replacement ferry and renovations to the Grutness and Feral Piers. Mr Duncan said the Feral community has been very patient and added the new ferry would be vital for the improvement and continuation of the island's economy. Shetland Island Council Chief Executive Maggie Sanderson said that replacing the Fair Isle Ferry had always been a priority for the council. Yes, it's certainly a necessity um, yeah, between Fair Isle and uh, Shetland. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, invitations to nearly 3,500 women in Orkney between the ages of 50 and 70 are to be sent out over the next few months as the mobile breast screening unit will return to the Belva Hospital. The mobile unit returns on June the 7th and will be based within the hospital's car park for around four months. And I do hope all the ladies will take up this invitation as it's such a simple thing to do and could save your life. Mm. Now, Burns Lane. The good, the bad and the ugly. Sourced from Unkins. The streets and lanes of Lerwick were formally given names in March 1845. Burns Lane, at the north end of the town, was named after Magnus Burns, a successful and respected merchant. Burns lived, and also had his business, in an old house which stood on the corner opposite the Clydesdale Bank, where Mackay & Co. is now located. Born and brought up in Anst, he was captured in August 1793 and was pressed to serve in the Royal Navy. Burns became quartermaster under Lord Howe and fought on the glorious 1st of June, 1794, against the French Navy. Losing an arm, he returned, battle-scarred, to Shetland and started a prosperous business in Lerwick. During the 1820s, he began to build and let houses up on the lane directly across from his business. He soon owned most of all the properties in that lane, which naturally became known as Burns's Close. Right, in those pre-Esplanade days, a sandy beach stretched the length of Lerwick's shorefront, interspersed by piers and lodberries. Perhaps I just should say what a lodbury is. It was a type of 18th century house in Lerwick, built with its foundations in the sea and combining pier, courtyard, store and dwelling house. Mm. So Burns's Lodbury was at the back of his house and Burns's Pier lay to the south of this. Merrin Modes Beach lay a little to the north. 
Mirren was a somewhat eccentric old woman who lived there, probably somewhere near the steps which are still named after her. A wall topped with an iron railing ran between Burns's property and that of Lawrenson and Company, which is now the Clydesdale Bank. This prevented passers-by from stumbling in the darkness onto Burns's beach below. The space between these properties is still called Burns's Walk, and it was here that Burns would take his daily stroll. Dressed in his best, he would strut around with his gentleman friends and discuss the affairs of the day. One of these friends was John Burgess, who lived and worked as a tailor from Number 1 Burns Lane. He was the father of the poet and author Haldane Burgess. Mm. Number 1 was down at the foot of the lane on the north side. The door to the adjoining house was in the pilot lane to the south, and the narrow entrance to Burns Lane formed a trance or passage below the two properties. The lane was quite cramped here at the bottom, but it widened out to give more elbow room, not to mention breathing space. Toward the top end of the hillard, the dark enclosed space created by the trance was a great place for children to play and also afforded pranksters an opportunity for mischief. In his memoirs, Tom Manson described how boys would sometimes fasten a piece of string across the unlit entrance to the lane. A jab in the ribs was often enough to entice an innocent passerby up the murky lane only to be caught or tripped by the string, to the hilarity of the impish jokers hiding nearby. Life in the lanes was always joyful, and Burns Lane was no exception. It's still giving us a laugh now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Houses were grossly overcrowded. In fact, the 1841 census records that there were almost 200 men, women and children living within the confined spaces of this narrow lane. When we consider that there was a lack of adequate sanitation in the town, the situation would seem to us unbearable. Magnus Burns's son, David, was appointed inspector of the poor in 1845. In his report of 1848, he described the town's paupers as dirty wretches who seemingly inclined to live in miserable hovels. It's noteworthy that many of the most offending slums were in Burns's Lane and had recently belonged to his late father. The inspector noted his concern that such squalid conditions were adversely affecting the health of the said paupers. Indeed, he died later that same year, victim to an epidemic of typhus fever. Yes, it's interesting, those wee lanes, because um, Orkney's got them. You've sort of got the main street and the wee lanes come off each side, and they're mm. interesting to look down, particularly the ones that you look down and you can see the sea. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, right. Well, the music today is track nine from Ali Bain's Lonely Bird CD. Last week here in Wellington, New Zealand, there was a scare with the COVID virus concerning an Australian tourist. Shetland also has had some new cases last week in the North Mainland. School children were asked to stay at home. We really do need to still be careful with keeping our distances, wearing masks and washing our hands. Such simple things to do which may keep you from getting the virus. The shortest day has been and the days here will be getting longer with spring not far away, which is a nice thought. Well, our time is up again, so keep safe. Cheerio. Bye. Stay warm. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs> yeah.